0: Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Turn it up just a touch more. No, way too much. Oh.
1: beautiful day today, wasn't it?
0: I hope you took in, soaked in the beauty and the sun
1: and the nature and being outside.
0: I uh, thought I'd talk about wise effort tonight. It's it's such a key issue in practice. It's in many of the lists, the key lists, effort or energy, sometimes um, used interchangeably. Uh, It's part of the Eightfold Path. Seven Factors of Enlightenment, Five Spiritual Faculties, and a number of other lists. <clears throat> and I wanted to touch on two different aspects of wise effort. One is the idea of effort being a balanced effort. <clears throat> a balance of effort, and the other uh, going more specifically into the list of the four wise efforts with a particular emphasis on the, the fourth that um, often doesn't get as much attention as the as the first three, but that I feel is really important to keep in mind and in your practice <clears throat> so first the question of effort as far as the energy that we put into practice and it's a it's an issue for um, most most practitioners how much should I do am I doing am I being lazy uh, Should I rev up the commitment and the energy? Am I um, doing too much and getting tight? And just how do I know how much is the right amount of effort? Does that ever occur to you? Especially if you have a scorecard there somewhere. Because we want to do it right, don't we? And so it's easy to judge our effort by what our practice is, is looking like at any moment. Am I concentrated? Oh, I'm concentrated now. This is, I'm in a groove. This, this is really going well. I'm, this is how much I should do. Or, oh gosh, I'm not mindful at all. Maybe I just need to try harder. Or... Um, Gosh, I have, I have so many hindrances. I'm doing something wrong. Or, hey, I don't have any hindrances now. Cool. And the, the thing is, we have all of these ideas about practice, and it's really impossible to know how your practice is going from the inside. Because what we're measuring up Against is some idea of what good practice looks like. But practice can look all kinds of ways. I remember one, one retreat, it was an earlier retreat, <clears throat> and um, I was there, um, I had settled down and really been with the primary object, my breath, just in, out, in, out. But everyone around me, it seemed, or most people around me, were just going through boxes of tissues, these deep cathartic experiences and and I thought I was missing out on something, you know? And I I went to Joseph, my teacher, saying you know, I, I don't know, I, I might be doing, it seems like everybody is getting so much out of this retreat. I'm just sitting here, breathing in, breathing out. You know? He told me something that has stayed with me for many decades. Don't go looking for trouble, it will find you. <laughs> and he was right. So if you have an idea, oh wow, I really want to work on stuff and go through a lot of purification and then I know I'll, I'll have gotten somewhere, let go of it. Or if you are the one going through the boxes of tissues and it seems like everybody is quiet, you don't know what the value is of you really touching all of those places inside. So we have all of these these concepts, and we can't really tell. And there's different kind of messages that, that we get as well from great teachers and teachings. Uh, I sat with a Burmese master who talked about heroic effort using a phrase that he didn't Uh, He didn't actually say this, but he was pointing to a phrase that uh, another Sayadaw from the uh, 19th century, uh, Lady Sayadaw, would say, practice like your hair is on fire. And heroic effort, just keep noting no matter what. If your leg feels like it's falling off, he didn't quite say this, but the idea was just note, Falling off, falling off, (laughs) falling off. I can do it. And the Buddha himself was a, a warrior. He came from the Kshatriya caste. And so there's a lot of warrior images. This is what the Buddha was purported to say before he was enlightened on his quest. Let my skin and sinews and bones dry up Together with all the flesh and blood of my body, I will not move from this spot until I have attained the supreme and final wisdom. Imagine coming into the hall with that <laughs> intention in your mind. And so, and I, I do know how, how um, powerful and beneficial it is to practice that way. That was in my in my earlier days, I was a kind of samurai warrior, not because I was, well, generally, it wasn't because I was trying to be tougher than everyone. Well, sometimes maybe a little, uh, but just because I was in, in love with the practice and it was so compelling. And I just wanted to see everything and just something that I don't think I mentioned it here, that happens that as your mindfulness grows stronger, um, everything becomes more interesting. And if it's more interesting, you want to pay attention. And as you want to pay attention, the mindfulness gets stronger. So it can kind of build on itself in that way. The other side is, if you're... If you don't put your whole heart into it, or you just kind of, as as the the image goes, you're taking the the kettle off the stove uh, every 30 seconds or so, it won't cook. And if you take your, um, if your effort is half-hearted at times, the mindfulness won't build, and when it's not strong, things aren't quite as interesting we look for entertainment elsewhere and then that just builds on itself as well so in every moment you're developing a certain momentum in either way <clears throat> but anyway i was a, a i had that kind of warrior excitement enthusiasm for practice but that can backfire as well and on one retreat i i hadn't i was i liked to go slow and i hadn't gone out or taken a normal paced walk for a couple of weeks actually i was just kind of crawling everywhere and it was good up to a point and then It started to get heavy, but I was going to stay with my practice. I'll go through it, just crawling, crawling. And I was getting more and more somber. And finally, I realized this is not working, and I decided to play hooky. And I was going to go, in my own mind anyway, and I was going to go for a fast-paced walk and try not to be mindful. The heck with it. I need a break from all this mindfulness stuff. Put on my boots, galoshes. This is at IMS and snow in the middle of winter. And my parka and all. And... The, the cold hit me and I was dressed warm enough. And there I was going for my unmindful walk. Left, right, left, right, <laughs> sniffling, hearing, left, right, thinking, left, right, sniffling, left, right. I couldn't turn it off. It was amazing. I was, it was the most mindful I had been in the previous, for the previous week or so. And it was really instructive to me, you know, just thinking, oh, that wasn't the way. That wasn't what was called for. What was called for was to balance it and lighten up and having having some spaciousness and joy and and aliveness and connection. And so spaciousness is another very key component of wise effort. <clears throat> and along with the, the message that, is, that say, practice like your hair is on fire, you know, heroic effort. There are other messages. Manindraji, who was Joseph Goldstein's first teacher and a, a teacher of mine, he would say, simple and easy, simple and easy. Empty phenomena rolling on. And that's a very important thing to keep in mind, particularly when you're efforting. This is from a great Tibetan master, Gendon Rinpoche. Happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower but is already here in relaxation and letting go. Don't strain yourself. There's nothing to do. Let the game happen on its own, springing up and falling back without changing anything, and all will vanish and reappear without end. Only our searching for happiness prevents us from seeing it. Wanting to grasp the ungraspable, you exhaust yourself in vain. As soon as you relax this grasping, space is here. Open, inviting, and comfortable. Nothing to do. Nothing to force. And everything happens by itself. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? That's a high Tibetan Dzogchen teaching, they tell you that after you've gone through the preliminary practices of 100,000 prostrations, 100,000 mantra recitations, and 100,000 visualizations, and you do all that work and they say, just relax. Okay? And they're, they're both true. So it's not like there's one amount that's right. It's about a balance of effort. It takes effort to land in the present moment, as you probably saw the, those these first days. And maybe now you're here a bit more just because that momentum of mindfulness has, has been building. You just keep on coming back when... One Tibetan teacher called it manual labor. Like you just, okay, come on back, come on back. But once you're here, once you actually land in the present, any kind of extra effort is extra. When you're in the moment, to simply open and allow. And relax. And there's nothing to do. There's simply being. And that's why for those who are who tend to be on the, the doing side and the achieving side and wanting to do it right, need to remember to relax and be at ease. <clears throat> Because it's essential to practice. It's essential to concentration. If you're trying hard to be concentrated, there is that contraction that's going to work against you. But to be fully um, committed to the moment and then just relax
1: in being here. And the key
0: is your sincerity. That's, that's what you can bring, not what it looks like, because at different times you're going to have different energy. Sometimes you're going to be um, alert and bright, and sometimes you're going to be tired or, um, or fatigued or going through a, a particular mind state, a hindrance. So it's not what it looks like, it's how can I bring a sincerity to this moment? Which simply means being here with it as best you can. And when you see you've gone, to come on back and doing whatever you need to meet the moment in a balanced way. So, keep in mind if you're evaluating your effort or what you're putting into practice, into your practice, just keep on tuning into your sincerity that you're bringing, which might change from moment to moment. It might mean like I did needing to go for an unmindful walk because you're trying too hard or going for a cup of tea because this is what's going to be supporting you in your practice my main question perhaps i've said this before is just asking yourself what do i need right now to show up in a balanced way to show up in a way that i can connect with this moment and listen to that and trust that this is from a a yogi who wrote a note at uh, the end of a retreat finally getting this He wrote, it is indeed a huge relief to realize that I'm not in charge of my thoughts, that they come up completely unbidden. It's also a relief to know that I'm not in charge of my moments of mindfulness. These are indeed just beautiful gifts. I think I've been laboring under the assumption that by sheer effort of will, I could manufacture awareness and that the only reason it wasn't happening was because of laziness weak brain power lack of dedication etc cetera, etc cetera. so this shift in emphasis towards sincerity of heart letting the practice evolve at its own speed and its own direction has made me incredibly happy
1: when you let go of thinking
0: that you're in charge of the program, what a relief to just, you put your heart into the practice in as skillful a way as possible, and then trust that the practice knows how to lead you onward. Along with relaxation is interest. It's, so it's not just, oh, I'll just kind of take it easy, you know. Yeah, if I'm mindful, I'm mindful. If I'm not, I'm not. Yeah, I'm, I'm just relaxing. It's, it's really being interested and in wanting to learn. That's the key. That's where the effort becomes effortless because you're just interested. When you're really interested in something, does somebody have to cajole you to paying attention? If I'm watching the Golden State Warriors, nobody has to tell me, oh, pay attention now. I, I'm glued. Come on. You know, I've let go a little bit better these days. but So interest is the key. I, I've, I've shared, some people have heard this. I have a birthday card uh, that I've never given away because it's my prize. And it's of this little baby who has obviously taken a, a booger out of his nose. And he's looking mesmerized. And you open it up and it says, you always were easy to entertain. Happy birthday. That's, that's my aspiration have that kind of wonder which we came into this world with and to really nurture it to just just be interested so for me as i often say if i'm leading a meditation to bring a kind interested relaxed awareness to the moment Three simple words, but what those words are pointing to is metta, an attitude of metta. And the seven factors of enlightenment, two sides in those two other words. Interested, that's interest, uh, investigation, uh, energy, and joy, which is sometimes translated as a keen interest in the object, and relaxed, calm, concentrated, or unified, and equanimous. Kind, interested, relaxed awareness to the moment, whatever is happening. So that's the balance of effort that I really encourage you to keep on experimenting with and seeing what supports your practice. Now I want to go to another dimension of effort. And this is the, the list, the classical list of the four wise efforts. And probably many of you are familiar with this, and I I might have mentioned it in passing in the uh, previous talk. There are four aspects to wise effort. Two, having to do with unwholesome states, akusala, did I mention this before? Yeah, no. Unwholesome states, or akusala, Unwholesome states are another way of saying states that are um, that are suffering and that lead to more suffering: greed, hatred, delusion. You know the big three, or attachment, aversion, ignorance. Same thing: um, judgment, jealousy, um, fear. Although that's not a classical in the list. That's really at the bottom of them all. All the difficult emotions: sorrow. Um, Um, confusion, you know those, right? And the Buddha says to guard against those states from arising as best you can, do what you can to minimize the stimulation of an unwholesome or a, a painful state. But they arise. That's part of being alive and when they arise, the second of the wise efforts is when kusala, an akusala state arises to learn how to overcome it. Learn how to skillfully work with it, whether it's fear or sadness or worry or any of the hindrances or doubt. There are all of these tools, mindfulness being the main one, to work with those difficult states. Others like self-compassion or, um, or relaxation or somehow getting some space, etc., etc. So to guard against the, the unwholesome, to learn to overcome it, skillfully work with it when it does arise. And then the other side of the equation are the cultivation of wholesome states. And the two is to develop those states when they arise, wholesome states, kusala, being non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion, which is another way of saying um, generosity or um, letting go, uh, kindness, metta, non-delusion, clarity, and a whole host of beautiful states. Joy, compassion, equanimity, patience. There's a number of beautiful states. And the Buddha says, cultivate those states consciously like we do the Brahmaviharas a couple of times a week here. And we're cultivating mindfulness, which is the key, the, the key state that cultivates all the other uh, beautiful Kusala states. He says, consciously cultivate them. And the fourth, when there's a wholesome state, to maintain and increase that wholesome state is a good thing. Not just, oh, got lucky here it is, but to consciously do what you can to maintain and increase that wholesome state. Now your mind says, well, hold on a moment. If I'm trying to maintain it or grow it, isn't that attachment? Did that cross your mind? But remember, I I shared in the last last talk about expansion and contraction. All the akusala states are states of contraction. All the kusala beneficial wholesome states are states of expansion. So if you're in the middle of a wholesome state, and you try to hold on to it, how do I keep it here? How do I make it bigger? Oh, it's feeling so good. Let's go for some more. As soon as there's any kind of contraction trying to hold on to it or being attached to it or wishing it would come back, that contraction is akusala. And you've just turned that beautiful state into an unwholesome state. You probably... Have experienced this many times for yourself when you're in a groove and saying, wow, this is cool. I hope it doesn't go away. How can I keep it here? Uh Uh-oh, it's starting to go away. And just you're thinking about, I hope it doesn't go away. You're not in the state anymore. You're thinking about, "Uh uh-oh, what if I lose it? So how to maintain and increase the wholesome state? Not by grasping at it, but by being very present for it. By really letting yourself take it in. Not just knowing, oh, pretty good right now, but rather, oh, This is what it feels like to feel good. That's a whole other simple, profound shift. And I want to talk about this for a little while. This is the the essence for my awakening joy uh, practice and that I love to share with people. And I got into exploring how to maintain and increase wholesome states because I lost my joy. I had a, a pretty long honeymoon period where I was telling everyone, you just have to be mindful, you just have to be mindful. And they would kind of keep their distance from me <laughs> after a while. You know, I'd get enthusiastic about things and it took me a while to get hard sell is not the way to go. And I had this long honeymoon period. It was for about ten years, where mindfulness was the key, was the answer to everything. Until at some point, as can happen, I became very serious about my practice. Dead serious about my practice with the emphasis on the dead. And I misconstrued some teachings that can easily happen and I lost my joy. So I want to share with you a couple of teachings that if misunderstood can have this effect one is um the very profound understanding of something called samvega s a m v e g a samvega this is the definition of samvega by uh Bhikkhu. The oppressive sense of shock, dismay, and alienation that comes with realizing the futility and meaninglessness of life as it's normally lived. A chastening sense of one's own complacency and foolishness in having let oneself live so blindly and an anxious sense of urgency in trying to find a way out of the meaninglessness, the meaningless cycle. Whoa. This is a very profound perspective, but you can get stuck in just thinking. Life is meaningless and the idea is to get out of here as quickly as possible. But it's important to understand the operative words, realizing the futility and meaninglessness of life as it's normally lived. As it's normally lived is buying into the idea that the game And happiness is about getting as much as you can, more than the next guy. And that if you put your moments of gratification close enough together, you've won. But that is a very futile endeavor because everything is impermanent. So when you realize, oh, that's not where happiness lies, there's another way to go about it. And you realize, oh, I don't want to get caught in that hypnosis anymore. I want to be free. And probably everyone here has had some taste of that or glimpse of that. And it can get very strong at times where you are really motivated in a very deep way. Ah, some vega. But it can be misunderstood. Let's get out of here as quick as we can. Another very high state and understanding is, uh, is called Nibbida, N-I-B-B-I-D-A where the teachings talk about seeing these five aggregates, this body and this mind in a different way than most of us that are entranced. And this is one definition, and it depends what translation you have. I'll share with you three brief translations of this word nibbida. A person practicing in accordance with the Dhamma, knowing things directly as they really are, sees what is impermanent as impermanent with right view. Therefore, one should abide in the utter disgust for the aggregates. That's translated by Woodward. One should abide in utter disgust for this body and mind. Whoa, I was having a hard time just even starting to make friends with myself in the mirror. He's saying, have utter disgust. Here's another. When a bhikkhu is practicing in accordance with the Dhamma, you should, they should dwell engrossed in revulsion towards the aggregates. Not much better, huh? But here's another one. When one sees it thus as it actually is with proper wisdom, one becomes disenchanted with the aggregates. Now disenchanted has a whole different ring to it. It means you're not under the enchantment of this body and mind or the forms around you. And the spell is broken. So it's easy to misunderstand and thinking, oh, I'm supposed to have disgust for this body when you're trying so hard to start to make friends with yourself. Here's another way that the teaching can be misconstrued. This is Ajahn Sumedho. I think I've, we've mentioned him before. Sometimes in Theravada Buddhism, one gets the impression that you shouldn't enjoy beauty. If you see a beautiful flower, you should contemplate its decay. Or if you see a beautiful woman, you should contemplate her as a rotting corpse. This has a certain value on one level, but it's not a fixed position to take. It's not that we should just feel compelled to reject beauty and dwell on its impermanence and on how it changes to being not so beautiful and then downright repulsive. That's a good reflection on anicca, dukkha, and anatta, on impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and the selfless nature of reality. But it can leave the impression that beauty is only to be reflected on in terms of these three characteristics, rather than in terms of the experience of beauty. People who can't see the beauty of the good or the true are really bitter and mean. They live in an ugly realm where there's no rejoicing in beauty and goodness and truth. But once you have true insight, then you find that you enjoy and delight in the beauty and the goodness of things. Because truth, beauty, and goodness delight us. In them, we find joy. This is a Thomas Byram translation from the Dhammapada of the Buddha's words. Live in joy, in love, even among those who hate Live in joy, in health, even among the afflicted. Live in joy, in peace, even among the troubled. Look within, be still, free from fear and attachment, and know the sweet joy of the way. So, I lost my joy, and then I fortunately didn't turn my back on the teachings, I wanted to take a look and see what did the Buddha actually say about happiness? The Buddha was called the happy one. He was not called the suffering one. And he said, go for genuine happiness and all the others will come along the way. The Dalai Lama, that beautiful embodiment of joy, who wrote a book, The Book of Joy, with Desmond Tutu. He writes in his book, The Art of Happiness, which is a beautiful book. The first line in that book is, the purpose of life is to be happy.
1: Just Take that in.
0: The purpose of life is to be happy. Now he's not talking about putting a big smiley smile on your face and dancing around. But he's talking about getting in touch with the true happiness that is possible, that's right inside of you. And the more you get in touch with your true nature, the more everybody benefits from it. Because they can feel that and we affect each other. And so to really come back to your true nature, this is, is, I brought a picture of, just to remind you of your true nature. I don't know if you can see it from the back. This is uh, Chloe Thomas from Melbourne, Australia, who she wasn't quite nine months after conception, she was born prematurely and this was still those early days. This is your true nature. This is what you come into the world as. And if you are fed and diapered and given a little bit of love, what does a baby do? Squeals with delight. Wow, isn't life wonderful? You might say that was a long time ago. Or I don't know if I ever had that. But you come into the world, that's your nature. And actually, if you put an adult in an fMRI machine, if they're not hurting physically or under stress uh, emotionally, they exhibit five characteristics. Let me see if I... I don't have it, but I think I remember... Conscious, calm, creative,
1: caring, and content. That's
0: our true nature. So what the Buddha is saying is rediscover, reawaken your true nature through these practices, particularly of cultivating wholesome states, and when they are here, to deepen them, strengthen them. I wanted to share some thoughts that hopefully you can take into your practice these next few days. So the first principle is to cultivate a wholesome state. The second one, which we're doing here with mindfulness and Brahma Viharas and self-compassion and being present for our life, the second is a teaching that the Buddha uh, gives in one discourse in Majima number 99. He talks about the gladness that is connected with the wholesome state. There is a feeling of uplift when you are in the middle of a wholesome state. He gives the example, suppose you're in the middle of a generous act, something that just comes through you, and you just feel like being generous spontaneously. You're not trying to be a do-gooder, but it just spontaneously moves that you want to be there for someone. He says, one should think I'm being generous now. This is his recommendation. Oh, I'm being generous now. Not check it out, I hope everybody sees what a generous person I am, but rather, oh, notice how good it feels for generosity to move through this form. And then he says, Feel that gladness of how good it feels. And the the words in the discourse, he says, That gladness, connected with the wholesome, I call an equipment of mind to overcome all ill will and hostility. Isn't that beautiful? He says, one gains inspiration in the meaning, inspiration in the Dhamma. Just by feeling that gladness, how good it feels. Again, there's a difference between feeling pretty good and, oh, this is what it feels like to feel good. To direct some mindful awareness right to the wholesome state. We've been sharing about the hindrances, which is very important to know how to Work with them and overcome the unwholesome. But equally as valuable is to let the wholesome state be a subject of your mindfulness. Ah. This is a beautiful moment. Oh, it's such a beautiful day. Hmm. There's happiness, there's peace. There's connection, there's gratitude. Don't miss it. Sometimes when people take the the joy course, I've been told a number of times, that because I say this a lot, the three words they get, don't miss it. And I'm offering that to you in these days. Don't miss it. And actually, even the interesting thing is when you're on the lookout for the good, not in grasping, but when you are including it in your your practice, the more you look for it, the more you will find it. Because we are uh, subject to this thing that neuroscientists call our confirmation bias. And generally, we have a negative confirmation bias where the amygdala, neuro cluster of neurons in our, in our uh, brain scans the horizon for what can go wrong. And if we're under stress, it particularly gets activated. And so many of us, most of us, just get, not most of us, and I bet maybe not here, But you can easily get into the habit of looking for the next thing that can go wrong. Some people have, that's their tendency. And for many people, it is in life. I read a story, I mean a study that said, uh, it said if you have one negative experience interaction, for most people it takes seven positive interactions to bring it back to Stasis, you know, somebody says, why'd you do that? like that. And then, hi, how are you? Nice to see you, one, you know. <laughs> Until finally you kind of come back. But you don't have to be stuck in that equation because you can train yourself, which is what the Buddha, I take to see what the Buddha said, to be on the lookout for for what's good, don't miss it, and really let it register. My friend uh, Rick Hansen, probably many of you are uh, familiar with him, he wrote uh, Buddha's Brain and Hardwiring Happiness, and uh, and he's a good friend, and he would come to the Awakening Joy course, and he would say, the brain, for most people, the brain is like Teflon for positive experiences, and Velcro for negative experiences. But we can change that around. And this is his suggested formula. He says, when you are in the middle of a wholesome moment, if you can take 15 seconds to really let it in, and if you can do that six times in a day, That's 90 seconds of well-being if you can handle it. And if you do that over a two-week period, you will likely notice some shift, both because the mindfulness itself is deepening the neural pathways, and even more profound, you're starting to be on the lookout for the good. Now, what else are you going to do here to, uh, while you're here? You know? Can you afford 90 seconds of well-being during the, during the day? Or do you want to spend most of it? No, I've, I've got my dukkha to tune into. <laughs> Excuse me. I'm really working hard here. You know? no. Life is about 10,000 sorrows and 10,000 joys. And not to deny or diminish the hard stuff, but not to be stuck there and not to be living in la-la land and thinking, oh, it's all wonderful. But the more you can tune into the beautiful, like Adren Sumedho says, the more it nourishes you. So you have more capacity and space to hold the dukkha when it comes. So with that, cultivating and increasing wholesome states, feeling the gladness connected with them, and the third principle that made so much sense to me, another teaching in uh, Majjuman number 19, where the Buddha says, whatever the practitioner frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of their mind. Can you argue with that? We are creatures of habit. In modern neuroscience, the saying is, neurons that fire together, wire together. That's how it works. So while you're here, start being on the lookout for the good. Even when you're having a hard time, ah, here's self-compassion. You're trying so hard, dear. It's okay. This can be valuable. I appreciate your courage, whatever it is. But when you are in the middle of a beautiful state, don't miss it. And that means not just Not just knowing it conceptually, but really feeling it. And when you feel it, there's something very deep that starts to open up to that channel. I just invite you for a moment to think back in the last day or two, if there's been any moment of well-being... It could be at lunch. That's always That can be a pleasant moment of well-being. It could be out in nature. It could be here in the hall. It could be getting under the covers at, uh, at the end of the day. Just think of a moment
1: of well-being that you've had. And simply remember it right now.
0: does it feel to remember it? You're not trying to go for bells and whistles now. Just remember it.
1: Does it feel in the body, in the mind, in the heart? And just enjoy it. Just relax and enjoy it. Okay?
0: Come on back. Could you get in touch with it? How many people remember the moment? Okay. All you need to do when you're there in it is really let it sink in. If it's a very profound moment, you can simply remember and you can open up to that channel. What the Tibetans I was speaking to John, John and I were talking earlier, the Tibetans have this expression, triggers for insight, where just like we can ha- be activated by something traumatic in our past, we can be activated by something beautiful in our experience. Like you, you hear a song from your younger days when you were having a great time and it just makes you feel good. It's all in there. So those moments of well-being are sweet and delicious. Not to hold on to them, but just in the memory, you can open up to that channel, particularly if it was a very profound moment. <clears throat> As a, just in the last moments, here's a, one, one more exercise. In, in my sharing about this, what I fa- have found helpful is to pick certain wholesome states to, to consciously cultivate over time, and that shifts shift things. So one is gratitude. It's one of the most powerful, and probably you've had moments of gratitude while you've been here, um, that when you're experiencing gratitude to really let yourself
1: Uh, marinate
0: in it. So just try this for a moment. Again, close your eyes and bring to mind some blessing in your life. Someone or something that you feel grateful for or grateful to. And call up an image of that person or that being or that situation so you feel more connected with it. And now give a simple silent thank you right from your heart. Thank you. And as you get in touch with that gratitude, that thank you, just relax in that feeling notice how good it feels thank you
1: take a nice breath and we'll call up a second blessing
0: you probably have so many someone something in your life or since you've been here and call up an image.
1: And once again, a thank you. Simple thank you.
0: Thank you for being in my life. A thank you life. And then just relax and enjoy it. Enjoy that thank you. One last time, take a nice deep breath. Do things in threes in Buddhism a lot. One last blessing.
1: An image. A simple thank you. Just enjoy that wholesome state. Nothing you need to manufacture or squeeze out. Just relax into it. Don't miss it. So
0: this is the the teaching on wise effort, Not just balance of effort, but in cultivating the wholesome and deepening that experience with our mindful practice. I'll just end with a short poem I love from Dana Falls, just seeing how every moment this is possible. She says, It only takes a reminder to breathe, A moment to be still, And just like that, something in me settles, softens, makes space for imperfection. The harsh voice of judgment drops to a whisper, and I remember again that life isn't a relay race, that we will all cross the finish line, that waking up to life is what we were born for. As many times as I forget, catch myself charging forward, without even knowing where I'm going, that many times I can make the choice to stop, to breathe and be and walk slowly into the mystery.
1: We can just sit for a moment.
0: Thank you for your attention. And uh, we'll have a a last sitting and chanting at nine, and I'll, I'll be in here and I'm going to do a, a a different chant and uh, just as a little carrot, the a, a little teaching. Um, before we end at nine twenty, that um, I want to offer you that I think you'll appreciate. So enjoy your walking, and if you do enjoy your walking, be here for it. Thank you for listening.